we come to two very, very familiar uh, miracles. Uh, remember the book of, of John is built around seven I am statements of Jesus and then seven miracles in order to um, illustrate and to uh, show everybody who reads the Gospel of John uh, that Jesus is the Christ and that He is worthy of our faith as our Savior. Uh, this first miracle that we're going to look at tonight, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle other than the resurrection. The only miracle that's found in all four of the Gospels. So every single time we read a Gospel, God wants us to encounter this miracle and be reminded of what it's intended to communicate uh, to us. And so it, it illustrates God is not afraid of repetition, not afraid of it at all, because He knows we are great forgetters. He also knows, as the old saying goes, that the, oh, there's an old saying that goes something like this, we don't need any new truths, we need fresh experiences with the old truths. And that's the truth of the matter related to that. I don't know about you, and I'm certainly not saying anything to make anyone self-conscious uh, tonight in, in any way. But when I sit down and um, let's say there's a guest speaker, I'm in another church or whatever it might be, I have a Bible, and then I always have a notepad with me. And even though the passage may be very, very familiar to me, and uh, the Word of God doesn't change, we change. Every time we encounter the Word of God, we are not the same person that we were a year ago. We're not the same person uh, we were a month ago. Uh, not even a week ago. And if the days are, are intense enough in our life, we're not the same person we were yesterday. So it isn't that the Bible changes, but we're changing on a daily basis. And so the Word is going to uh, always be alive to impact uh, our lives. And so... Uh, to look at these, these truths and uh, to look and say, Lord, in a fresh way, I want these truths to impact my relationship with You. Not the one I had a year ago or five years ago or a month ago, but where I am right now in life and in the needs of my uh, life. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So Jesus is coming from, in terms of the circumstances, He's in the region of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he crosses the sea to get to uh, this location that He, he is in. Uh, for those of you who have been to Israel on one of the last few trips, uh, this, uh, as we've gone to that Mount Arbel, the overlook to say goodbye to the region of the Galilee, Jesus coming from uh, the north coming from, uh, or, or the south coming from Jerusalem to the north would make his way through that valley by the Arbel. He would come into that part of the Sea of Galilee and the north uh, uh, west section of the Sea of Galilee and then cut across the sea uh, over uh, on the, to the northeast side of it to what is the area of the Mount of Beatitudes. And that gives us a sense of, uh, of, of where he uh, is the Sea of Galilee here is refer referred to as the Sea of Tiberias? Uh, the Sea of Ti uh, Tiberias was called the Sea of Tiberias in honor of one of the Roman uh, Caesars uh, at that time, and so uh, both of the names are included here. There's a great multitude that followed Jesus uh, as he's making this trip because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. He's healing all kinds of people. And when you have a disease or you need healing and there's a healer in the neighborhood, you're going to find, uh, you're going to find him when, he, when he's Jesus. And so you can just imagine the crowds that were uh, coming around him. We'll get a sense of the size of it in a moment. Jesus then went up on, on the mountain and there he sat uh, with his uh, disciples. And so the Sea of Galilee is ringed by mountains or high hills. And uh, we know from Matthew's Gospel that he is endeavoring at this point to get uh, alone with the disciples, uh, to kind of meet with them, decompress, we might say. And, uh, but the crowds are so needy, 
They're so eager to bring their needs to Jesus that of course, uh, His compassion for them wins over, over uh, everything. We're told that uh, now a, 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 the, fe- the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near, so that tells us it's in the spring. So when he has them sit down a little bit later, he's thinking about their comfort. There'd still be green grass on the ground just like there would be in California. And then the Lord lifted up his eyes and he saw this great multitude coming uh, toward him. And he said to Philip, let's run for our lives. Now that's not what he said at all. That's what I would do. Uh, I'd run from a group or two or three. What needs can I meet? in anybody's life. And so he, he uh, sees this great multitude coming and he said to Philip, where, may, where shall we buy bread that these may um, eat? And so he asked the question of Philip first here about where they might uh, buy bread. Philip was from the city of Bethsaida, which is the nearest town to where they are right now that you could get bread. And so uh, he, this was his old stomping grounds, and so if anyone knew where we could, you could get bread, it would have been him. Now, we're told uh, here in verse 6 that Jesus asked the question of Philip in order to test him. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So always know that if God asks you and I a question, uh, it's never because he's needing to be informed. Uh, almost always it's to, to teach us something and uh, getting our attention in, uh, in that, uh, that way. And so he asked the question of Philip, where can we get the bread to buy bread that we, we can feed this multitude? And, uh, and so he lets Philip wrestle with the question a little bit to come up kind of with his uh, best solution he could think of. And, and then he's going to, of course, excel it by... Uh, by a mile. Now, Jesus is not being cruel to Philip. He's not playing with Philip here uh, in, in this. It, it was a test, and it was a part of Philip's education as an apostle, an education as, as a disciple here, and, and Jesus is wanting to drive home a point to them. One of the greatest ways that we learn something is if we first wrestle with the question ourselves. And even if we can't come up with the answer to the question, the fact that we've wrestled with it, uh, then when the answer comes to us, it finds a, a deeper and a, a more meaningful place in our life than it would ever without us wrestling with it. And so Jesus is allowing uh, this uh, to happen And he tests Philip here by putting him in the middle of a situation that is way beyond Philip's uh, physical resources, but even his ability uh, to figure out. And what he wants to reveal to Philip is what Philip really puts his trust in uh, when push comes to shove in a kind of overwhelming need or a trial. And so remember that Philip, like all of the disciples who were with Jesus at this point, They have been with Him for a while now. They've heard His teaching. They've seen miracles. They've seen Him heal every single person that needed healing in entire villages. They are not unfamiliar uh, with the supernatural of Jesus and of of His uh, public uh, ministry. But uh, Philip, I think, with the other disciples, they had failed to learn the practical lesson uh, from all of that and that is that Jesus is our greatest resource in any situation we ever uh, face. And how often it is, even after we've known the Lord for years and even for decades, when we find ourselves in a situation that outstrips our resources physically, uh, 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 in terms of money, emotionally, mentally, whatever uh, it might be, and we face those kinds of things, uh, the very first thing we do is we try to figure it out on our own, and we fail to turn to Jesus uh, immediately as our resource in the situation. We will try everything that we can on our own. 
before we then turn to Him. And so the disciples, they're, they're just like us and have that tendency to make Him the last resort after they've tried everything else first. And we can live as if we have no prior history with uh, Jesus in our lives at all. Now, Philip is an interesting guy. All of them are. All of the apostles are. Philip is uh, kind of an accountant type. He's, a, he's an, um, a, an analyzer of a situation. And so he immediately begins to go to work on what uh, a loaf of bread will cost, the size of the crowd. We know it's 5,000 men, not counting women and children, somewhere between uh, 10,000 and 15,000. And he starts to work this all the way uh, through his, his mind, and he tries to figure out how much money he'd have to have if he went someplace where he could even find that much bread and bring it back to then uh, feed the, the multitude. And he estimated that he said, even 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to give each person just a little piece uh, of bread. Now, de- a denarii was the, uh, annual, the daily wage of a working man. So it would be eight months' salary for someone that is in the trades. It's a pretty good chunk of change, especially uh, at, at this point in time. It isn't that they had 200 denarii and, and somebody had it in their pocketbook and uh, to spend. They didn't uh, have it. Uh, that would be just the bare minimum to, to feed them and uh, even allow each person just a little bit. And so uh, he looks at it and, and the command of, of Jesus here is, is beyond uh, their financial resources. Philip said, 200 denarii worth of bread, not sufficient to feed them for uh, every one of them to have even just a little uh, taste of, of bread. And so here he is. He's a disciple of Jesus. And when he faces this overwhelming kind of situation or test that's been given uh, to him, his first response is to assess uh, the possibility of a solution to it solely in the light of money, in the light of his resources. And we stop and we think uh, ourselves here tonight. How many of us, don't shout out, are in some great trial or difficulty in our life, some great weight is upon us, and we are a Christian, and we have tried to solve this in our mind on the basis of what's left in our bank account, or on the basis of what favors we can pull in uh, from whoever, or on the basis of all of these things that, that uh, are under our control, and we have yet to take of that need to Jesus and to recognize Him as, the, as a Christian as the single uh, greatest uh, blessing in, in our lives in times uh, like this. And so, again, after all Philip had seen Jesus do, you would have thought that his, <laughs> the first things out of his mouth would have been, Lord, in order for you to do what you're thinking here, This is going to require a miracle from you. You're the only one that is bigger than the need that we're looking at here. If if we're talking about what I think you're talking about. But he doesn't go there. That does not even enter his mind. Like so often in in our lives uh, too. So he begins to count all of his pennies and he calculates the size of the the crowd and he, he deems the entire proposal just to be Uh, impossible. And yet Jesus is standing right next to him. And he lives as a Christian. As if Jesus does not exist. As as if uh, he counts Jesus uh, for absolutely nothing in the situation. Now, uh, Andrew, in verse 8, he takes a stab at it. And one of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he said to Jesus, in, in light of the question, he want, he's going to pipe up with a solution. And, and uh, he said, there's a lad here who has five loaves and two fish. We found him, robbed him. I didn't really do that. But, but that, that's the extent of the food we could find among the group. There's a lad here who has five loaves and two fish. 
And if he had stopped there, he'd have been the hero of the entire account. Have you ever kept on talking beyond where you would have been the hero of whatever conversation you were in and blew the whole thing up? So here he is, he says, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, and that's more than enough for you to feed a crowd of 5,000. But that's not what he says. He goes on and he says, and he, and he almost feels awkward. He's kind of like excited. Five loaves, barley loaves. Barley's with the weakest grain. It was animal food, actually. Five uh, barley loaves and two small fish. He's excited about it, but then it dawns on him how insufficient it is for the situation. But what are they uh, among uh, so uh, many? And so, don't think of these barley loaves as like these, these huge loaves of French bread or a baguette or anything like that. It would have just been a little bun of barley. Some sardines or the fish would have been very small uh, as, as well. So either way, the situation was impossible, humanly speaking. And, but it helps us to understand uh, what they were handing to Jesus here in the miracle. The disciples are squirming at this point. And so Jesus comes to their rescue, as He does with us always. And He commanded them then, uh, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't going to take a third stab from, from anybody on this. Uh, he had made the point. And then Jesus said, make this people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place, being that time of the year. He thinks of the people's comfort. And so the men sat down and they numbered about 5,000. Uh, and so He then... Uh, Jesus sat them down. We we're told in the other Gospels that He broke them in, had them broken up into groups of 50 and 100. He does, always does everything decently and, and in, in order. No chaos like um, you know, the Red Cross coming in and, and dropping off a big uh, food supply and everybody comes in and uh, kills each other to get to the food. He just sits them all down and He's going to take care of them. And so the 5,000 plus the women and children uh, they all, all sat, uh, uh, sat down there. And it gives us a sense of, of the magnitude of, of the miracle. And then Jesus, He took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He thanked God for the meal. They were all going to uh, partake in. That's to be like Jesus. He then distributed them uh, to the disciples, kept breaking the bread and the fish, and kept on, kept on, kept on, kept on. And the disciples then took all of this to those who were sitting down, and likewise the fish as much as they wanted. People ate and ate and ate and ate and ate. And, uh, and uh, we're, we're told that in verse 12 at the beginning here, so when they were f uh, filled, and the word is glutted, they were glutted, they couldn't eat, one more bite of bread or fish. Now, in the ancient world, <clears throat> it's important to stop and realize um, to, to be able to eat to the point of being completely full and glutted like we do at Thanksgiving. Uh, for that to happen, even a day in your life, was an amazing thing for you to feel. People did not have that much food. They could not afford the average person that much food. This is an incredible blessing that has been uh, given them in this miracle of Jesus. And so when they were filled, He said to the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Whenever God does a miracle of provision in our lives, it is never an excuse to then be wasteful with that provision. So we see people win the lottery and these kind of things. Well, we see them in the newspaper. I don't know if you've met them. And uh, I, so, I don't know what you, you do when you win $200 million. <laughs> you better give 99 point whatever percent of that away tomorrow before it destroys your life. And of course, uh, virtually everyone's lives are destroyed who win these lotteries. But 
the states getting their money, which is the main thing, really, in all of life. <laughs> and and uh, uh, so here, uh, but the, the, God comes in and He blesses us beyond what we even thought He was going to bless us. Not just a meal to get us around to breakfast or around to dinner later uh, that day. And uh, it's, it, it's so easy when God's blessings come into our lives to treat it like that kind of thing. Uh, the old saying, easy come, easy go. That's why inheritances, when people get them too young, easy come, easy go. And here he, he shows the here, when I provide for you supernaturally, it doesn't mean you just play fast and loose with that provision. And therefore they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And so the 12 baskets of fragments, God, Jesus wasn't going to let that go to waste. And then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So here is the greatest blessing way beyond the meal for the crowd. They come to realize He is, Jesus is, the prophet that Moses spoke about. And Moses, you might remember, he prophesied, he spoke of a prophet who would come, speaking of the Messiah. And here as they're, as they're fed with, uh, uh, with this bread now, they remember that God used Moses to feed uh, them, so to speak, in the wilderness with the manna. And Moses was used to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt. And so this is the Messiah who is going to feed us for the rest of our lives uh, in this way and maybe bring us out from under the yoke of, of Roman, uh, Roman rule. So the light goes on for them and they recognize Him in this way. Clearly, in terms of lessons here, a miracle teaches us about uh, the compassion that Christ has for people and uh, of His miracle power. Um, you know, the world is very much going sideways today in, uh, morally and spiritually, which is always going to have implications in the physical realm. It just always uh, will because you're blowing up your foundation. And you can't blow your foundation up uh, without there uh, being consequences to uh, the building itself, to the physical uh, side of things. But uh, the people that were around week in and week out, at least in my experience, is they're hustling. Uh, they got all these problems that are going on on a national level, international level, local level, all the problems in their life. And everybody is pretty much just hustling uh, to get by and keep moving forward, taking care of their own lives, their families, whatever it might be. And there is great cause to look at people today uh, as we see them with great compassion. Jesus certainly, uh, certainly does. We certainly see here too that uh, apart from Him, that is Jesus, we can do nothing. That's on full display uh, in this passage. No matter what God calls us to do in our service to Him, we will all of us be in over our heads. Uh, there will always be this sense that I am trying to feed a multitude of 5,000 with five loaves and two, uh, two fish. And uh, uh, anything that we try to do, uh, uh, that God calls us to do in this world, there's going to be that constant uh, being confronted with the fact that we are simply not up to that. You know, if we were up to it, we'd get all fat and sassy spiritually and uh, be impossible to live with. The fact that He calls us to do things that, that are impossible apart from His provision keeps us close to Him. And then He gets the glory out of our lives when He does what it is that He's going to do. Then I think practically in the nitty-gritty of life, the great truth that this event communicates to us as Christians is that Jesus is our greatest resource in any situation in life. But the passage also re reveals to us that though He is absolutely and always present with us, in all of His wisdom, in all of His power, how often we make Him 
our last resort only after we've tried uh, everything else. And I think the great question that this event drives home in our lives as Christians is, what do we count Jesus for in our lives and in the needs of our, our lives, in the nitty-gritty of, of our lives? Uh, in this regard, I use the illustration frequently because it's the best one that I know in, uh, concerning this. And it impacts me and challenges me every time I uh, uh, consider the illustration. And it's about Frederick the Great, the great uh, Prussian or German military commander of the 1700s. He sent a messenger to one of his generals stating, I'm sending you against the enemy with 60,000 men. And when the troops were counted, they only numbered 50,000. Well, the general that received the, the troops, he sent a letter of protest and complaint to Frederick the Great, insisting that there was a mistake. And Frederick the Great replied, no, there is no mistake. I counted you for 10,000 men. On a practical level, that is the value he gave to that general. On a physical, carnal level, the value that he gave to a single general uh, under, his, uh, under his command. And so this evening we look at the needs in our life, the circumstances in our life that we're facing, and in the privacy of our own hearts, just really to ask, what am I accounting Jesus for in this? What promise am I, uh, have I even brought this need to Him? Have I even said, Lord, this thing is way beyond me. I don't know what to do here. Uh, I've even thrown everything that I have against it. But what do you want me to do here? I mean, everything changes with that. Lord, you saved me. I am your problem. That makes my problems your problems. And so what do you want me to do in this situation what five loaves, two fish, and our greatest effort will always only be five loaves and two fish. What do you want me to give you, the small thing that I can, so that you can then perform the miracle that needs to occur here for your glory in my life and, and through, uh, through my life? And the passage reminds us of the importance uh, of, of doing that. And to ask the Lord tonight, Lord, I am such a forgetter in this regard. I forget that You are the greatest resource in my life. And I can forget it for long periods of time. And I can forget it even in the deepest trial. And would You help me now going forward in my Christian life for that to be my first thought in the face of need rather than my last thought. And I think the Lord will answer, answer that, uh, that prayer. And so we ask ourselves tonight, if, what problem might there be in our life that we failed to look to Him for? And then, of course, tonight uh, to do it. When, uh, when Karen and I, when our children were uh, very young and we were downtown at 10th and F, um, they, in the children's ministry, they, they were taught a song and I remember our youngest daughter coming home and just saying it until her face was red and her fists are clenched like this. And, and the song is, My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And then she would repeat that and re repeat that. And it's a good song. Not just for children, but for adults. And those of us who have been adults for a very, very long time. And to look at that situation that's going on in our life right now and to be able to say, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do here. And then to have the whole thing uh, turn uh, uh, on that. And uh, the difference that that, uh, that makes and the opportunity that it gives uh, God to then be that great in our situation. Miracle number five of the seven miracles is Jesus walking on the water, verse 15. And then, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, uh, He departed again to the mountain by Himself alone. Uh, the other Gospels tell us that 
he departed the, to the mountain in order to pray, and uh, that he sent the disciples to go across the, the um, Sea of Galilee and, uh, 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 in the boat and to make their way uh, toward Capernaum on the way to another city. And so he goes up onto the mountain alone, and when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, they got into the boat as he commanded, and went over the sea toward Capernaum, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. And then the sea uh, arose because a great wind was blowing. Again, I'm not that comfortable on water. In the cruise ship, I'm okay with that. In uh, at Don Pedro. Uh, so, but here you have a here you have a a, a storm uh, that ta- makes uh, the the Sea of Galilee uh, arise, and that's uh, so. It's quite a storm that they find themselves in the middle of. And so, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. And he said to them, "It is I." Do not be afraid. And then they willingly, and the idea is eagerly, excitedly, uh, received him in the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were uh, going. The context of this, and it's important to understand uh, the context of it, is that having fed the people all of this food, now they want to make Jesus king. They recognize the miracle, they recognize that he's the Messiah that He's the King that God has promised, but here's a King that feeds you uh, uh, also. So they're excited about this, and they're not going to leave the timing of Jesus revealing Himself to the nation as Messiah to Himself. They're determined to do it uh, immediately. And so, as I mentioned, Jesus goes up onto the mountain alone uh, to pray. Disciples go down, get in the boat, begin to make their way to Capernaum. And, uh, and as Jesus had instructed them to go to Bethsaida by way of Capernaum. And the reason that that's important to understand is that it, when they're in this storm, they are exactly in the perfect will of God for their life. Now the reason that that's important to understand is that if, if you're anything like me, I know better theologically but practically there can be a gap there a little bit for me but because somehow in our minds we have the idea that being right exactly in the will of God means that life is going to be smooth sailing to use imagery from the passage that there there may be a light storm or two a drizzle once in a while you know just to uh, let us learn something like this. But no storms like this. No storms that we think it's going to sink, uh, sink the boat. And yet, that's the kind of storm. The kind of storm, as we learn from the other Gospels, where uh, they, are, uh, uh, they are concerned for their survival in the, in, in, in the storm. And so, they're right in the middle of God's will. Jesus had told them, go to the other side of the Sea of Gal- uh, Galilee and go on before Him so they knew uh, He would be joining them somewhere along uh, the journey. And to their credit, they obeyed Him. And and, and as they obeyed what God, Jesus called them to do here, they find themselves in the middle of this, this great storm. A storm that makes you wish that you were on land. And I've uh, been at least once, well twice in a storm uh, like that. Now we know from verse uh, 19 that in the middle of this storm, they're rowing. And they're trying to get across the Sea of Galilee by virtue of rowing. And and, uh, so uh, we're told in Mark's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, that all of this occurs here at the fourth watch of the night. That's between 3 in the morning and 6 a.m. in the morning. So they've been out on that boat uh, trying to get to the other side for uh, eight hours or so. And they've only gone three or, or four uh, miles. So they're wet, they're exhausted, and miserable, and very, very uh, stretched. And so they know they're in danger. 
And uh, to their credit, they just continue to obey the Lord and what He's told them to do. They don't give up. And, and it's important never to disobey God's commandments in order to escape a storm. Never to do that. And we need to re remember that in the storm, as we learn from the other Gospels, that the whole time they're in the storm, Jesus is watching them and He's praying for them. He's never, he hasn't lost sight of them at, at all in the middle of the storm. So Jesus walks on the water and, and that demonstrates His authority over nature. Their reaction is, is fear. And uh, it would be terrifying to see somebody walking on water in the middle of the Sea of Galilee toward your, your boat. And then He said to them, verse 20, It is I. Do not be afraid. Literally, uh, he, the, the word that is, it, it is for used for it is I here, it literally means be. Or I be or I am. He let them know that He is not only Jesus, but that He is God. I am. It's all under control. And uh, do not uh, be afraid. Now that's better than having the cavalry arrive in any situation is to have Jesus arrive in, in this way. So he was received willingly, excitedly uh, into the boat. I think in terms of lessons for us for meditation here tonight concerning the storms that we have even in the Christian life it is first uh, again to realize there will be storms when we are right in the middle of God's will for our lives. They... They are not like Jonah who ends up in a storm because he decides that he is going to avoid God's will by disobeying His command. That's not the storm that they're in. They're in the storm because of their obedience to Jesus' command. And the reason that this is important to notice is that, again, somehow in our minds we just get this idea that God's will in, in our lives, or His will in general is, is going to be something that's going to be uh, a relatively easy life. It's certainly going to not be the hard storm that they found themselves in the middle of. And, uh, and, and then it can shock us when this kind of storm comes into our life. And one of the first things that we so often think is, what have I done? What have I done to displease God? That He would put me in a storm like this. And we begin to search our life for sin. And what can we repent of? And what in our lives can we throw overboard? Or whatever it, it might be. Not realizing that you can be right in His will and, and the circumstances be extraordinarily difficult. The greatest example, of course, is Jesus. Who said concerning His own life and ministry, He said, I always do those things that please the Father. And we know of Jesus that He went on to live a long life well into His 90s and then died and went off of the scene. No, that's not how things worked out for Him in the Father's will. In fact, the Father's will became so difficult for Him, He's not going to vacate it in any way, but that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he cries out, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. I mean, just thinking about not just physically what he's going to face the next day, but the separation within the Godhead that is going to occur. It was, it was very, very hard for Jesus to remain in the Father's will in terms of the circumstances that it put him in the middle of. And yet he stayed there. And Jesus, of course, is the great example for us in the Christian life. And what is true of him, not on the same level, will also be true uh, of us. And, and uh, uh, the, 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 all of the different kinds of, of trouble and difficulty, Jesus facing the mocking and the blaspheming and being beaten and crucified, all within the, the will uh, of, of God. And so there's the importance of realizing that these kind of circumstances in our life, these storms, they're not accidental. 
They're not going to go to waste. God's using them for purposes in our lives that we may never fully understand. And then to also to engage these kind of storms uh, with faith. And, and to declare to myself, not to anybody else necessarily, it's okay if you do, but to ourselves. By God, I just confess concerning God that by His grace, He is overruling these things in my life to conform my life into the image of Christ. He's going to work this together for good. He's going to make me like Jesus in a way that I probably could not be made like Him under any other circumstance. And to tell myself that somehow this storm that He's put me in the middle of is somehow a necessary part of my life to one day stand before Him and hear Him tell me, uh, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And then to, so to view these storms in that, that way. And then as we can pray to, to the Lord, Lord, if there's any other way to make me like Christ, to be equipped for Your purposes, to be prepared for heaven, let this cup pass from me. And then 95% of the time what happens? The cup does not pass from us because it's the only way that it can uh, happen. And I think that it's amazing what hardships we can endure in our lives when we realize there's purpose behind that hardship. That God is never going to let that go to waste in, in our lives. We're not a victim of the circumstances that we're in. It's just another opportunity for Him to glorify Himself in me and my relationship with Him, but then also to the world as He, as he does uh, that, uh, His work in our lives. And what a, what a completely different spin it puts on how we process uh, life. He will not... Uh, waste uh, this at all. This is doing a good thing in me. Another thing that we learn here, and we've already mentioned it, is we must never disobey God's commandments in order to escape a storm. And that will be a uh, temptation. And it isn't just we say, well, all i got to do is um, compromise or disobey these commandments in His Word in order to escape this, uh, this storm. We shouldn't do that. But we also important that we don't jettison His call upon our lives when things get hard for us in that calling. We can't disobey and say, I'm out, I retire, I quit. Uh, uh, Jonah tells you how those go, resignations go. And, and, uh, and I'm done with this and, and I, I, I'm through. And, and so often there can be the temptation, I'm done with it, I throw up my hands, this is too hard for me, and, and, I, and I want out. And to realize that as, as hard as the will of God can be, and it can be very hard, as difficult as the will of God can be in our lives, and it can be very, very difficult, there is something much harder than that. And that is to be outside of the will of God in this life. Because now my circumstances may be easier, but I don't have a peace inside. And I don't have that assurance that I'm right with God and I am not have that assurance that He can bless me rather than chasten me. That, that is an exchange that is a, a disaster in terms of an exchange every single time. And it helps me to realize that. I'd like to get out of this. I'd like to not uh, do this thing here, but it will take getting out of His will in order to do it. And I've done that a, a time or two, which is all enough uh, or, uh, uh, to realize, uh, no, the, the will of God, as hard as it can be, is the greatest life that we can, can ever, ever uh, live. Sometimes there are uh, reasons for storms in our life that we may never ever know about. And sometimes there are reasons for storms that only God knows about at the moment in our lives. 
And I think that very often, as we see there in, in uh, 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 verse 15, as they're wanting to make Jesus now take Him by force, make Him uh, the King there, uh, I, I think that there's something about this attempt by the people to make Jesus take Him by force and make Him King that Jesus did not want the disciples to be exposed to. He did not want them to be in the middle of that. And that somehow being in the middle of that represented a greater danger to them than ever being in that boat out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. His disciples are very, very immature at this point in their understanding of His kingdom. Uh, They are uh, still clamoring among one another over which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Not in heaven, but the kingdom that Jesus is going to set up Upon the earth, they've thrown the whole suffering Savior, a portrait of the Old Testament, out of their minds, and they've jumped all the way to the conquering King portrait of the Messiah, and who's going to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus during that kingdom? They they haven't even begun to understand what Jesus has come into the world to do, and that it's a spiritual kingdom that He's come in to establish first and foremost before He comes as conquering King at His second coming to establish a, a phys- uh, physical uh, uh, kingdom. And they might have been swayed by here's this crowd and, and uh, the crowd's desire to make Jesus King and fill their bellies with bread every day and they might have joined the crowd and clamoring for it. And so Jesus made them get into the boat and leave. And that's what we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter, 20, chapter 14, on the same issue that He made them uh, get into the boat and go to the other side. And in Matthew's account, that word made in the Greek is very, very strong. He compelled them. He forced them. He is urgently, in my thinking, removing them uh, from a very, very great uh, danger. Now, be that as it may, in the early years of my Christian life, when I would encounter uh, storms uh, or I would encounter trials of this magnitude or a lesser magnitude as well, all I could ever think of in the middle of the trial was how to survive it. And that's, that was my limited, how in the world do I batten down the hatches and how do I uh, 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 get through this thing and survive. But as I moved on, as m- most of you realize too, you continue to grow in your Christian life. We continue to grow in our, our Christian ministry. And uh, there would be times when the Lord would uh, speak to my heart, speak to my spirit in the midst of a great storm I would be in that He had allowed it for my protection to humble me, maybe I was getting a little too big for my britches, or to slow me down, you're moving too fast uh, here, and, and, and then always to deliberately force me to draw very close to Him in order to survive uh, the trial and, and the, the difficulty. And because some great temptation or danger was going to come close in my life, and He wanted me to be very, very focused on His work and to be very, very close to Him when uh, they uh, did. Through the years as a pastor, and when you're a pastor, you um, keep your finger on the pulse of other pastors. It's like, I suppose, um, any athlete or anybody in any field, um, you're well-versed in that that field, or at least you have some time entitled there a little bit, and uh, and so you you keep an eye on on those things. We're wanting to learn from one another and so forth. But I remember in the years that I've been a pastor, there have been three very specific times when it seemed like this great demonic wave uh, came across the country, and uh, and and really a demonic wave that hit uh, pastors. And I, and I, and I remember fe- feeling the spiritual warfare of the storm in my own life. 
and, and I mean, we're talking about kind of off the graph, once in a decade kind of, of thing that is, is going on. And, and I'm, I'm feeling this, I'm experiencing uh, this, and then soon after the wave, news begins to leak out about a number of prominent pastors uh, falling in the face of temptation associated with sexual immorality or with drugs or, or pride or whatever it might be. And then I would look back at the timing of when these falls occurred. And in those blocks of time, the Lord put me in these kind of trials that forced me to stay so focused on Him and so close to Him so that when that wave, that storm, that temptation then flowed over, uh, I would be uh, relatively untouched by it in terms of, of falling as a result uh, of it. And, and I don't say this for the purpose uh, of, of, it, uh, of, of uh, in our lives, but uh, of all storms in our lives, but, but when a great storm hits, it isn't a bad idea to ask ourselves, I wonder what greater storm this storm is protecting me from. And I think in the disciples, this storm was protecting them from a storm that was even more dangerous to them. And they never knew it at the time. It would only become apparent later. And isn't it interesting in our own walk where we walk with the Lord and then we're in the middle of something we don't know why and Lord, how come? And all of this stuff that goes on in our minds. Then a month goes by, a year goes by, and then all of a sudden, you see it. That's what He was doing. And He knew that what He was doing in me then, I would need today. He's so wise in how He allocates and allows these storms uh, within our lives. We also need to remember while in a storm that Jesus never loses sight of them. There's something about knowing that He knows that is uh, such a comfort at times. Just to know I'm in the storm, but if I'm in the storm and I remember He knows. He's aware of everything that I'm facing. It's a comfort to me. I remember another time that I was in a very, very awful storm in my life. It's not one that you're aware of, so don't try and guess. And the Lord really encouraged me with this truth that He knows. And I, I really survived that trial by God's grace and, and on the basis of two Jeremy Camp songs. And one of them was a song uh, that is, He Knows. All the bitter weary ways, endless striving day by day, you barely have the strength to pray in the valley low. And how hard your fight has been to keep the pain within, wounds that no one else has seen, hurts too much to show. All the doubt you're standing in between, all the weight that brings you to your knees, He knows, He knows every hurt and every sting, he has walked the suffering. He knows, He knows. Let your burdens come undone. Lift your eyes to the One who knows. He knows. And to know that He knows. And to know that He never ceases to pray for us. There's something again there about that realization. And this, this miracle is intended to remind us of it regularly. Tonight, in the trial that we're in. He is interceding for us in that trial. And there's something about knowing that people are praying for us and how much more Jesus is praying for us in the middle of these kind of storms. We notice too that, when, that He will come to us in the storm. It will always come to an end, but it will be just at the right time. Came at the fourth watch. Now, they probably would have hoped for like seven in the evening like an hour after they launched off. But it went way, way longer than, than, uh, than they, they wanted it, uh, it to. And so to trust Him tonight to bring your storm 
uh, to an end at just the right time because that is exactly what He's going to do. And then finally, when Jesus says, go to the other side and commands us to do so, we're going to get to the other side. That always comforts my heart. Paul said, uh, as he wrote to the church at Philippi, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. We get there. We get there. Storms and all, we get to the, to the other uh, side. And Jesus promises that it's, it's true. Now, if the worship team will come forward right now and the men that are going to serve the communion, that would be great. And I'd like to use these two uh, miracles of Jesus as kind of uh, um, Lord's Supper meditations for the bread and for the cup this evening. They're going to pass the bread and the cup out to you. It'll be in a little container and you open one side and there's the bread. And then uh, don't partake of it on your own. Just take it, hold on to it while we're led in worship. And then, then we will partake of the bread together and then uh, we'll pray and then we'll partake of the cup a- as well. But to ask ourselves tonight as we hold the bread and as we partake tonight, to ask ourselves just in the privacy of our heart, what do I count Jesus for in the nitty-gritty of my life? Not, it, not 20 years ago, not whenever, but right now tonight. And not, not even as a means of exhortation or to try to make anybody feel bad. But just to have our thinking readjusted and our hearts readjusted in the trial that we find ourselves in. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, the worship team is going to lead us in worship. But you are perfectly free in the privacy of your own heart to sing to yourself, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do in the face of of that, uh, that trial. The Apostle Paul told us what we can count Jesus for. He argues in this passage from the greater to the lesser in the light of what God has done for us in providing us uh, with salvation. Uh, He wrote to the church at Rome, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, and He is, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things. If He has done the greater in saving us, the greater in the spiritual realm, then He will be faithful, more than faithful, to take care of every need in the physical realm and to allow that to be a comfort and encouragement and a perspective changer is needed tonight as we worship Him and consider Him this evening in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Trinity, would you lead us? Gentlemen, you can serve communion.
Let's lift the bread, symbol of our Savior's body. Heavenly Father, Jesus, we just acknowledge Your greatness. What a long, long history so many of us have of Your great work within our life, the demonstrations of Your greatness. And then, despite all of that, sometimes just like the disciples, we need to be reminded of it in our present circumstances. And thank You for the reminder tonight. Father, we thank You that if You were able, and You were, to overwhelm every spiritual need that we have had in our lives, and whatever was involved in that, we can't even begin to understand. We're thankful of what we do understand, but we know we're scratching the surface. And we know that if You have done that, that out of the greatness of that same love, You will take care of the needs that we have in our life. The temporal, physical, immediate, nitty-gritty needs. And Lord, as I've spoken for You this evening, and laying out Your Word, You see our lives. You see what we're in the middle of. You see what each one of us needs from You. And we pray, Lord, that You would confirm Your Word tonight in each person's life with accompanying signs and wonders and that You would give all of us patience to wait upon You while it happens. And we pray these things to You, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. In terms of the walking on water and the disciples making it to the other side, that passage is intended to communicate to us when we find ourselves in storms that you're going to be okay, 